And welcome back to And Then What Happens, the serial fiction podcast starring you. I'm Rich Wisniewski, last time as temporary co-host of this, joined by the ever-lovely... Laura Mae Baker, hi. Hi. So, uh, this this is the last one. This is the last time uh, we, we're the show. That's true. It'll be going back to uh, the original hosts, and uh, but it's been fun. It's been really fun. I'm actually super interested to hear what they think. Yeah, I'm a little nervous because I've never been so heavily involved with this, but kind of excited. Like, it's kind of like something that was based entirely in colored pencils. And we just ran roughshod with markers. <laughs> we definitely made some strong decisions, although I think we left it open-ended enough that anyone could come in and pick up the story and add their own take on it. Well, one of the things that I have uh, noticed having written for this show before is you don't want to stop writing for the show. Like, you kind of, once you write a little bit for it, you feel like it becomes yours in a way. To the point where if they gave me the option to write every week of this show, I would take it. But that's not how this works. You hand it off to somebody else who then writes something awesome that you would never have thought of. Well, that's the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you get attached to the characters, but that's the basis is campfire stories. I think when you used to play those games and you sit around a campfire and someone starts a story and then you have to continue it. And it usually gets ridiculous by the end. Now, we had a lot of ridiculous fun on our run. Uh, we did a recap episode, which I thought was pretty fun. We did an episode with Paul DeSena, who you could find at Paulie D Says on Twitter, uh, where the three of us wrote an episode just to kind of show people, like, look, it's doable. You can do this. And then last week was that episode. So now we're starting to get back towards the original format of the show, which is the host's for the last time, Laura May Baker and Rich Wisniewski. Uh, moving forward, it will once again be Chris Robinson and Kathleen Wisniewski. Uh, the hosts talk about last week's episode and then set up the new one. And this is a traditional episode in that sense. <laughs> okay. So for talking about last week, yeah, last week was interesting because we had three different writers. I was privileged to be one of them. I actually started the story. Um, and then I remember Paul texted me midway after I had already written my portion and I had written in third person. He was like, I just wrote this in first person. I'm assuming you didn't. So I was like, well, it's going to be a very funky story. In a, a peel back the curtain kind of sense, when I saw that part of it was in first person, that affects the voice that I read it in. <laughs> because yeah. uh, third person is the noir. It's McGrady says. It's like, narration. First person is just McGrady, which I wisely decided is my normal speaking voice. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the noir voice is a little grating, right? <laughs> Hard to do. Well, uh, it was my professional wrestling voice, so I do have some experience with it. But uh, yeah, no. Um, so it was kind of tonally fun to do. Yeah, it was interesting to see. It's weird to write part of a story and do a setup. And I remember all week um, I was waiting to see what they added to it because I started the story and I left it um, right where spoiler if you didn't actually listen to last week's you probably should go back before you listen to this one uh, but then I had McGrady get out to shore and then I just left it and you know then Paul wrote this really cool like 
trippy road trip stuff where things were happening and then you put the button on it and end it um so yeah it was kind of fun to see where it went from where i started and if you're a big fan of the show there's actually a conversation a canonical conversation between ghost and reginald that you have to like do some finagling to find well, you know, it's interesting because you say, like, if you're listening with headphones or AirPods in, um, you know, it should be in different ears, almost like some of the sound effects. I was listening to it on my laptop while I was doing some work, so I could very clearly hear all the background stuff. So if you're listening to it on a laptop um, and you started hearing strange noises, that was intentional. All right. Uh, so um, basically, story-wise, because unfortunately, we have to wrap up this intro. Yeah, we do. Uh, so in story, what has happened is, um, McGrady has been on Adam's operating table for quite some time and we weren't sure what he was doing. It's been revealed that Adam wants the safe, like everyone else. Right. Adam wants the safe because the safe apparently has some technology, or blueprints for technology, that people Adam is competing with would find useful. So Adam wants it before they get it. That's right. Adam wants that information, and he was using some technology that we don't have um, that would be able to look into McGrady's head, create a fictional scenario. So poor McGrady was thinking he escaped, and really he was still there. But then he woke up at the end, so that's where we left McGrady. And uh, in, in a big turn of events, we revealed that the safe is a person. Right. It isn't a physical safe. It's a human being. Right. So the 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 um, snow globe, I kept wanting to say hourglass, the snow globe is kind of like a sundial. And if you have it at the right time, in the right location, it'll tell you the coordinates where to go. I don't know about location, but just the way you use it. So McGrady knows how to use it. Um, other people, if they pick it up, might not know. So they need to have McGrady show them how to use it. And also McGrady might not have been completely forthcoming with the information because as Paul uh, suggested in his part of the story and I full on said out loud in my part, McGrady was aware of Adam's machinations. So he withheld information. At a point he, he becomes aware. That's the thing. When did he become aware? Yep. Uh, well, uh, he definitely became aware before he revealed the name of the safe. Guys, I'm sorry. Canonically, the safe is not named Amanda Hug and Kiss. Mm. Uh, and you can tell this because in story, we did pronoun the safe as a he. Did we? Yep. I don't remember that. Uh, Paul, In Paul's part, he said this isn't where he likes it. Well, then there you go. It's canon. Yep. So canonically, the safe is male. We need to get more ladies in this story. We do need to get... I'm happy to see Donatella. <laughs> I tried to give her a little bit more of a, a background, a story, a history. You, know, you got to flesh out those characters. Can't just be all about one dude. Right. Uh, but the safe is a person. The snow globe is a sundial that tells you how to find that person. So the only hanging MacGuffin that we haven't fully explained is the bullets from the very first ep first and second episodes. Right. And the medallion of six gold truths. Right. Which might be uh, getting a little a little play. Maybe. Uh, so we had a submission for this week's episode, traditionally. <laughs> um, very talented author. I'm actually really <laughs> surprised that we got them. A returning uh, favorite of the show, uh, the author this week, uh, who was it? 
It was me. I was Laura Mae Baker. That's oh. true. And I, I am very distinguished. I did get a poem into my school's magazine when I was in sixth grade. So, you know, good stuff. And if you'd like to submit an episode to the show, where you go is to andthenwhathappens.com. There you can find a form to fill out and also links to email addresses if you have additional questions. Uh, we're all found on the social medias. You can go to at Chris Robinson, at Wright Nesky, at Rich Wisneski, or on Instagram. It's lovely Laura May with an E on Instagram. Although I and Laura can't get you into the show after today. Sorry, guys. No, but we encourage our friends to submit and we encourage all of you to submit. Um, it really is a lot of fun. And if you're looking just to kind of get back into writing or exercise your writing muscle, this show, I mean, it was a, it was a blast. It was really fun. All right, well, uh, thanks for going on this fun journey with me. And let's find out together. And then what happens? Mm. Now, dear listener, if you'll indulge this storyteller a bit and allow us to take a step back into the past. Things have been so exciting that we almost forgot to let you know how Bazoo survived his near-fatal car wreck. One might wonder how such an insignificant character made it back into our sordid tale. Well, dear listener, wonder no longer. Bazoo had never been the heroic type. It's not that he didn't want to be. But as a middle-class kid in South Florida, life had never presented much call for heroism. Bao was the youngest child and only boy in his family. His father was a cook at a local Chinese food restaurant, and his mother worked as manager of the restaurant and at home. Bao grew up comfortably and loved, but he had never felt pushed to become great. His eldest sister, Mei Zingzu, had been a musical prodigy, and Bao grew up listening to her play classical tunes on the piano. Baozo tried to learn to play, but his chubby fingers always seemed to get stuck to each other and fumbled over the piano keys. His other sister, Shengzhou, was an accomplished athlete and had been an Olympic hopeful in gymnastics. Bao didn't have much interest in sports, and preferred to stay home while his sisters went to concerts and tournaments. His parents were always at work, and when they were home, they often seemed stressed about boring adult things. Shang played tennis, field hockey, and of course gymnastics every day. Mei Zing would play and play and play her music all afternoon, leaving her brother alone to his own devices. Just like any American teen in the 90s, Bao had grown up watching the Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers kick butt on TV and was itching for an adventure. While Mei Zing's long, delicate fingers played Bach and Mozart, and Sheng was at practice, Bao would sit in the kitchen, watch cartoons, and bake goodies. During DuckTales, he made fresh, rustic bread with a cheesy dipping sauce. And as the gargoyles theme played, he rolled delicate puffed flaky crust into coiffons. When Captain Planet saved the world, he made seven layer dip and fresh tortilla chips. He would come home from school, turn on the TV, and get cooking. 
His mother would come back home with Shang from practice and push him out of the kitchen, snapping off the TV, telling him to do his homework. But schoolwork was never as exciting as his shows, or never as easy to understand as his recipes. After his sister Mazing left home to attend Juilliard and moved to New York City, and Shang earned a scholarship and a full ride at UC Miami, his parents finally turned their focus to their son. With such talented sisters, Young Bao had been determined to find his special talent, but nothing seemed to click. He was doing okay with school, but he was nowhere near the top of his class. He had tentatively brought up the idea of culinary school to his parents, but his mother had a fit when he suggested it. No son of hers would be a cook. She hated working at the restaurant, but she had to because a cook's salary was not enough to raise a family on. Did he want his future wife to have to work? Didn't he want to go to college? Bao was no longer allowed to use the kitchen after school. He was put into an SAT prep class, and his life's focus became getting into college. Finally, after all his efforts, he got into Florida State University and majored in criminal justice. While he wasn't a concert pianist like Mei Zeng, or an Olympic coach like Shang, his parents finally seemed to accept his choice of detective, and at least it sounded cool when they bragged about their children. When Bao attended the academy, he earned the name Bazoo from his classmates, and it stuck when he started working with the police full-time. Bazoo became disillusioned with his career fairly early into it. Unlike his cartoon shows growing up, criminals in Florida were not evil masterminds that he had to outmaneuver, but rather naked meth heads with backyard laboratories, more often than not. Humanity was depressing. He would spend his days hunting down pimps and drug dealers and counterfeit money farms, and then doing more paperwork than it was worth. At least he wasn't working in the missing children department, he would tell himself when he got home. He began regressing back to his young teen years, except this time it was Grey's Anatomy and making German chocolate cake, modern family and red velvet cupcakes. When Bazoo hit his mid-thirties, life had become routine, and he had become soft in the middle. Bazoo was bored and frustrated with his lot in life when he met the Veracruz family. They immediately recognized him for the pushover he was, and started paying him to look the other way of their illegal deeds. Bazoo didn't know when he had fully shifted into being a bad cop. It was not like a sudden decision had been made. It started as little envelopes of cash to not drive down a certain street at night. It did not seem so bad. Then he started getting requests for favors. Could he let them know if a man in a baseball hat had reported anything at the station? Could he check the records on this booker? By the time Bazoo was 40, he was beyond doing simple favors and had doubled his salary by letting scum and villainy get away with small crimes, and sometimes not so small crimes. Eventually, his supervisors noticed, and he was talked into taking an early retirement. He found himself baking in all of his free time, stress baking and eating. His shirt buttons began to strain when he closed them up. 
his gut drooped over his slacks. He used to share his treats with friends and family, but he was rarely social these days. When Bazoo had received the request to follow McGrady, he figured he could use his extra cash to set himself up somewhere far away. It was nothing personal against McGrady. It was just business. Just a tag. Nothing that nefarious. When the accident happened and the SUV Bazoo was in began to flip over and over, he could hardly believe it. It didn't feel real. The sound of the metal being forcibly torn and pushed sounded foggy and far away. As his airbag went off and smushed his face, the first few notes of Ode to Joy began to play in his head. When the car finally stopped moving, Bazoo tried to lift his arms up like Shang after her gymnastic routines, but found that he was bound and couldn't move. His world began to black out. He was paralyzed, and when a robotic creature lifted him out of the wreckage, he hardly noticed. The Ode to Joy, as played by his eldest sister, banging out the notes furiously on the piano, blasted in his head. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. He felt cool water surround his body as the robot gently lowered him to the ocean, like a limp bride to Poseidon. Was this it? Was this his life? He had never married, never won any awards, never had kids, never amounted to much in his career. He was a crook. He was pathetic. This was all there was. He never even made a baked Alaska. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea. The water began to fill Bazoo's lungs and the world became dark. He closed his eyes. Mortals join the happy chorus which the morning stars began. Father love is reigning o'er us, brother love binds man to man. What was this? Music? Was he still having his hallucination? No, this was real. A delightful baritone filled his ears as Beethoven sang to him the final stanza of the song. Ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music leads us onward in the triumph song of life. I've always loved that song, said Beethoven to Bazoo after singing the final notes of the song. Bazoo was startled out of his dreamlike state. Wait, Beethoven? That couldn't be right. Yet there he is, in satin pantaloons and a powdered wig. You look confused, dear friend. Beethoven grimaced at him and leaned forward. You were singing Ode to Joy, were you not? I assumed you were a fan. You've been dead almost 200 years. Am I dead? Is this heaven? Do I get to go to heaven? Can you hear me in heaven, Beethoven? Beethoven smiled at Bazoo. 
I see. Well, Baozo, I can certainly understand your concern. To answer your questions, I am not Beethoven. You are not dead, although you should be by all accounts. And you are decidedly not in heaven. Although I do like to think that Beethoven would be able to hear his own music in the afterlife. That is a rather lovely thought for you to have. Bazoo felt panicked by his circumstances. And yet the man who looked an awful lot like Beethoven was very calming, and he felt soothed as the man spoke. I suppose you feel confused, which is only logical given your circumstances. Allow me to exposit for you a bit, my dear Bao. I believe in you. I believe that deep in your heart you are a good person, and that you have the capacity to do the right thing. Who? Who are you? stammered Bazoo. I promise I will answer every question you have. Just indulge me here, please. Your friends call you Bazoo, right? Yes. Well, Bazoo, we have been watching you for a bit. Now, don't be alarmed. But you are part of a bigger picture that got caught up with some very nasty people. These nasty people left you for dead in the ocean after your car flipped six times over a four-lane highway into a swamp. Why were you on the highway, Bazoo? I was dragging a fella called McGrady. And why? I don't know. Yes, you do, Beethoven said, looking very serious. He had something, something people want, and... And he's... <laughs> My head! Yes, Bazoo. McGrady had something. Has something that people want. He is something, too. What is it? Not sure. But my colleague is very interested. So I am very interested. It's something in McGrady's DNA. His offspring, too. Probably why they went after his sons. I don't know what it is, but he also possesses the key, making him very valuable to many. What? Who are you? What do you want? Bazoo asked, feeling that panic creep back in. The form in front of Bazoo shifted. First he saw his mother, then McGrady. And finally, the form settled on an average-looking Caucasian man with brown hair that Bazoo could have sworn was from a stock image search of... Dude. The guy had a strange necklace on. Looked like some kind of a dragon or snake. Seemed a bit ostentatious for the new character, but Bazoo was glad that he... It. Finally settled on a form. You're not from around here, are you? asked Bazoo. No, I'm not, and neither is the one they call Adam. He left my hometown with some very important technology. This is precisely why I need you, Bazoo. Adam and his crew all believe you are dead. This gives us an opportunity that only you and one other can fulfill. Another? Bazoo asked as the creature pointed towards a tube-shaped machine with clear walls. Inside was a person. Bazoo knew them. It was W.V. 
Yes, you and your friend were both injured to the point you are believed dead. Unfortunately, W.V. sustained a nasty head and neck injury and will be unconscious for a bit longer, so I must rely on you to convey the information I give you. I saved you both so that you can save another, and possibly the world. You will finally get your chance to prove yourself, Bazoo. You ask who I am, yet you don't know who you are. Look around. What do you want? The creature lifted Bazoo off the medical table and walked him to a window. Bazoo gasped at the view. Earth was just below them, shimmering in blue. All around was space. It never felt so small. And yet he felt his veins thrum with energy and excitement. I'm going to drop you both off soon. We don't have much time. Adam cannot know I'm here, and that I know he is here. I ask you, Baozou, will you help me? Yes, breathed Bazoo. Wonderful, the creature took off its necklace. Give this to W.V. When the time is right, they will recognize it. It will help me find you and keep you safe. What do I call you? asked Bazoo. You can call me the old man. I've been around for a while. Now, you need to bring me McGrady's son.